Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 302 being recorded on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Uh, Jason, we have a very special guest today. First of all, um, this is a exclusive first look, so... Uh, some big new industry trend data we're revealing on the show from one of our favorite guests. Uh, for longtime listeners, I'm going to kind of tease you with a bit of a riddle. He's been here for episodes 68, 114, 180, 213, and now back for 302. That's five episodes. Um, his title is interesting. Principal and Chief Futurist Consumer Industry Deloitte Consulting, LLP. And Jason, I know uh, you uh, lord the length of your title over everyone in the industry, but I've done the math. Your chief commerce strategy officer, that's four words. Uh, this guest has principal, I took and out because it doesn't really count, chief futurist, that's three, consumer industry, that's five. So he beats you in title length as well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, Casey Loba. Hey, Scott, Jason, how are you guys? Uh, we are awesome, uh, except for you dethroning me for most verbose title. Yeah, I actually, before we created that title, I went on LinkedIn and, and looked yours up and, and did the math. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I need 25% more than Jason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we normally don't let Scott do public math on the show. So I do have an intern fact checking the titles, but I, I it sounded right. Yeah, and then the other call. intern is on chat GBT right now, writing a new title for me. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a good call. Yeah. Uh, but uh, speaking of unfact check things, Casey, I believe it is the case that uh, a five-time guest is a show record. So congratulations oh, on that. Great. Uh, where do I pick up my parting gift? The interns will send that to you. <laughs> I'll, I'll look for it. Yeah. You have to part <laughs> before you get the parting gift. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, well, thanks. I appreciate you guys having me back on again. Um, you know, after the first four times, I thought maybe the fifth time, maybe I'd get it right. Absolutely. One, um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but the, so one of your first visits, you talked about the changing consumer and the great bifurcation. And, um, that played a big role in me starting Spiffy. So we, uh, whenever I pitch Spiffy, I talk to potential investors and partners about, you know, we, we are really focused on the convenience oriented consumer. And then they say, do you have any research on that? And I say, well, I actually do. And then I afford them the, the cherished copy of that that OG material you guys put out there on that that's been a huge huge impact on me and starting a company. So oh, uh, that's amazing. Thank, thank you for that. Yeah. That's very, that's amazing. Hopefully, in in our new work, uh, maybe you'll discover some new opportunities. Maybe start two or three more companies, Scott. Well, I have my hands pretty full, but hopefully, <laughs> listeners, I'll defer to our entrepreneurial listeners to to yeah, it's their turn to to jump off from your research. I'm I've got my hands full with this whole car washing thing. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so, Casey, obviously, uh, most of our longtime listeners are going to be familiar with you, um, but uh, for for the newer listeners, uh, can you give us the the quick quick synopsis of your background and and uh, uh, how you came into what I I think is now a new role for you at Deloitte. Yeah, it's a new role, but but it's also an evolution. Even Scott, you know, was was mentioning the research we had done before, and you'll see that a lot of what we'll talk about here builds on the things we had done before. But just just for background, uh, I think I've been at Deloitte now coming up on 27 years, um, and really the vast majority of the time that I've been at Deloitte, I've served in the retail industry. Uh, you know, first launching you know our e-commerce practice back in the early 2000s. Uh, and then building our omni-channel strategy practice within retail. And then most recently, I've taken on this role on behalf of our firm. And I was somewhat reluctant, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the role is to think about the future of the industry, um, to think about you know, the broader collection of consumer sectors. So we, you know, we, we, we can talk a lot about retail, but this includes um, airlines, consumer products, hospitality, auto, 
you know, the broad collection of the ways that consumers spend their discretionary, uh, their, their discretionary cash. It's fascinating. And I, I think in the great tradition of corporate America, you didn't get to shed any of your old responsibilities as you took on the new ones. Is that true? That is true. That it just, uh, it just stacks up. Other duties as assigned. Yeah. I, no, I, I look, I'll talk a lot about the work that we're doing here today, but I do, you know, continue. I have been serving clients and I continue to serve clients, uh, alongside the, the, the duties, the research, the work that we're going to talk about here today. But, but now that you have two jobs, you make twice as much, right? <laughs> That's right. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into this new research. So, um, you know, it's the, the future of the consumer industry and you've got, uh, you know, you're, you're nice enough to share a draft with Jason and I, and we've, we've, uh, read through all that. And there's, there's probably six hours of conversation we could have. It's, it's kind of both deep and wide. Um, so maybe for listeners, Talk a little bit about the origin of the research, the purpose, and maybe a high level, and then we can kind of pick where we want to dig in. Yeah, sure thing. Sure thing. Well, for, first of all, we like to think that we as a firm are really good with our clients, you know, helping them navigate the next two, three, four years. But we also were sensing that there are a series of things going on happening in the environment and questions coming at us from our clients that were a bit longer, you know, in, in time horizon. Um, sort of recognizing that there's a series of things that perhaps are, are happening that may sort of radically uh, impact the next decade of our industry. And so, you know, our leaders um, sort of convened and said, you know, we, we should uh, dedicate some amount of time to sort of thinking acro across a longer time horizon. And so for us, we picked a 10-year time horizon. And so we started to, to talk about doing some work about the future. Now, you guys know me, I'm somewhat of a contrarian. Um, and, you know, frankly, I look back in history of, you know, reports that are titled the future of, by the way, you can go Google the word the future of, and, and you'll find literally, you know, millions, if not billions of hits on Google with those words. And historically, what I found was that many of those, you know, efforts, those research, they, they tended to be prophecy based or prediction based. And honestly, you go back in time and a lot of them really are not that good. Uh, and therefore, I was contrarian saying, look, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of of making a set of predictions. And, you know, I can go back in 1999. I remember a report in 1999 that said RFID is the future of the retail industry. And and here we are, you know, still not a material part of the industry. Um, that, 10 years ago, you remember this, uh, magic mirrors are the future of the department store. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, over time, you see a lot of those things. And so as we talked about it, I was the contrarian, said, I don't think we should do this. And leadership said, great, uh, you get to do it. So I get the assignment, but I actually think there's a reason behind that. The reason was, is because I was a contrarian, because I was pessimistic about the idea of doing it, I think our leadership thought maybe we would take a different approach. And honestly, that's where I started. I asked myself, how, how would we go about this in a way that would be different than predictions and prophecies? Uh, you know, how would we go about it in a way that I could actually be proud of what we what we've come up with? And what you'll hear when we talk about this is that what we haven't done is made predictions. What we haven't done is made prophecies. What we have done is researched deeply the things that are happening, uh, you know, in 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 our environment. And I'll say environment very broadly that we believe are converging forces that will shape the next decade of our industry. And so part of that also was. How are we going to go about it? You know, previously, like even Scott, the, the the research that you referred to earlier, the great retail bifurcation, it was myself and a few other practitioners. We got together and we thought through it and did the work. This time I said, I want to do it differently. And so we went about convening a group of professionals, experts that would be informative to the process. In fact, as we said here today, we've now involved over 800 professionals industry experts, luminaries, academics, uh, major industry uh, trade groups, you know, have all participated either through workshops or a series of interviews. And our ability to convene this kind of group as input and in helping us to shape this was really, I'd say, is differentiated from anything that we've we've done in the past. And then, of course, we also have our Deloitte's Global State of the Consumer Tracker where we pulse consumers on a monthly basis across 24 countries to better understand behaviors and intentions. And, and that was part of this as well. And so the whole intention of this, 
process was broad, inclusive, thorough, wide, and differentiating, differentiating perspectives and really generational input. Uh, and out of that came what we call the six forces shaping the future of the industry. Now, there were literally hundred uh, or more individual things that were happening that the group raised and said, this is important. Now, what's interesting is there's no, no one person had the complete view. You know, the, uh, the economists wanted to talk about the things that they knew. We had people who were sociologists. They talked about the things they knew. People in auto talked about the things they knew. But what we were able to do is really uh, collect this information, organize it. And we organized those hundred or so things under what we call the six forces. Um, and then we went about doing the research to deeply understand those things. So the first component is really the six forces. And then we proceeded to, to think about the implications of those forces along three dimensions. The first dimension is markets. And that's what's being sold, who's it being sold to, how are we creating value? The second component of that was models. What are the new business models? How will business models change over the next decade? And finally, mechanics. And that really is the operating model. How are How are we changing in terms of how we deploy labor, how we think about operational decisions, and really just the execution of, of the business. Um, so that's really the, the two primary assets that come out, six forces research, and then what we call the three M's or the implications upon the industry. Cool. Um, why don't you take us through the six for forces at kind of a high level and maybe a little blurb on each just so we kind of know, you know, mentally where, where they fit in, in the world. Yeah, perfect. Um, so as I mentioned, like 100 or so things roll up to these six forces, the first of which is really the changing consumer. Now, you mentioned that, Scott. Uh, we had done some research on that previously around how is the, the consumer really changing? Well, we were able to take that one and go much deeper. And of course, changes, you know, the changing consumer, you know, includes things like increased racial and ethnic diversity, changing sexuality and gender identity, aging, longevity, shifting geographies. It, wealth inequality and generational wealth inequality. Um, those are the kinds of things that begin to make up the changing consumer. And each one of those we've done deep research on. But that consumer also operates within a shifting society and culture. And so under society and culture, you see things like delayed or declining marriage, delayed or declining home ownership, uh, certainly declining birth rates here in the U.S. as well as most uh, major developed uh, economies. Uh, there's things that have to do with education and the, and the education gaps or declining, you know, subscription to religion. Those sorts of things live under society and culture. And of course, many of those things I just mentioned define us as who we are as consumers, as people, and when, uh, and what sort of purchase do we make? When do we make those purchases, et cetera? But what you begin to see already is, uh, I'll say, a theme of increased diversity that's starting to really show up. And we can come back to that idea. But I use diversity here along multiple uh, dimensions to sort of talk about this mosaic of consumers and behaviors that are starting to really become clear. But then we move on to what we call exponential X-Tech. Now, what, what do I mean by X-Tech? Well, most of us in the industry, you know, when we think about technology, likely think about infotech. But the reality is there's a broad set of technologies that are all moving you know, and, and maturing at very rapid rates. Uh, and converging. So not only is it infotech, but it's biotech, it's material science, it's science as it relates to space, you know, and, and other um, technologies as well that are advancing that usually fall outside of what, you know, our purview might normally be for uh, infotech. Then the, the fourth category is what we call radical industry upheaval. And really, if you begin to dig in there, you see real declining financial health, you know, at the top line, the consumer spending has been growing at about 3.6% CAGR over a 10-year period. The vast majority of traditional clients would love to have a 3.6% CAGR growth over 10 years. So the consumer appears to be healthier than many of the players in the industry. We also see declining barriers to entry, uh, a shift from products to services, and a whole collection of other things that really begin to impact uh, the industry, the health of the industry, et cetera. And of course, all of this operates within extreme climate and planet. We, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about global warming, rising sea levels, 
uh, deforest uh, deforestation, natural disasters, things like that, um, that certainly have us on a, a dire trajectory. Uh, but there's also some signs of hope here, too, as that, you know, uh, natural green energy is now cheaper per kilowatt hour than um, petroleum uh, based energy or coal based energy. And that's actually a good tipping point. So there's some there's some good news on that front, too. Now, the the, the issue for our industry, though, is that we're going to be we're at about three point five billion consumers globally. We're going to be adding another two billion, another two billion in the next decade. So we're already on a dire trajectory. You add two two billion additional consumers. By the way, over eighty percent of those will be in Asia, uh, and you have to begin to look at what you know how that slope of that line increases, and and what do we do differently? Our industry produces sixty percent of the greenhouse gases that are produced by any industry, and so adding an additional two billion consumers really you know amplifies that dire trajectory. And finally, shifting economics, policy, and power. Because the whole industry operates within those dimensions of, of geopolitics and, and local politics, changing monetary policy, uh, you know, power and, and, and power structures. Uh, and there's some real there's some real changes happening there. We're, we see, you know, a reversion to nationalism. We see things like reshoring happening for production work, political extremism, polarization. There's some issues around immigration the difference between how important it is for us as a country versus some of the political positions and, and, and trends that we see around resistance to immigration within the country. Anyway, all of these things matter. And all of these six forces, you know, are converging, colliding, coming together. And so you sort of have to have this broad understanding of the forces in order to begin to ask, okay, what happens when you bring these forces together? So for listeners that are, uh, that's a lot to chew on. So, <laughs> so, you know, and we, you know, as I mentioned, there's no way we're going to cover even, you know, like more than one or two of the six and then the underlying pieces. Um, our listeners are largely in the retail e-commerce world. Um, if you were to kind of cherry pick, uh, you know, a couple of these to dive into and, and, you know, with a, a, a mind towards some actionability and, uh, you know, where, where would you start? Yeah, so I started on this word diversity, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there for a minute because the way I'm using the word has multiple dimensions to it. Um, and sometimes that, you know, when we talk about diversity, sometimes people think about racial or ethnic diversity, which certainly is a component here and it matters. You know, for example, if you looked at the data and if you got out to the cutting edge and it just, let's, let's just compare for a minute, the baby boomer generation was 75% white. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the Gen Z, is 52% white with 25% identifying as Hispanic. So just there, just between those two generations, there's a stark difference in terms of uh, the diversity on that one dimension. Now, by 2044, it's projected that most of the U.S. population will be non-white. And meanwhile, those identifying as two plus races will nearly double. Now, when you couple with that, another dimension of diversity, um, you know, aging and longevity. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, because there's a real change that's happening over the next decade on that front as well. So if you go back in time and you look at the aging of the population, what you see is a, a, a real dramatic increase from the 70s until, uh, until today. There's already been a, a dramatic increase, you know, moving from the 20s into, into the late 30s as the average, you know, age of a citizen in the United States. Uh, you know, soon we'll be at a place where we've got more people over 60 than we have under 18. It's a real tipping point. In addition to that, we've got real scientific breakthroughs that are happening daily, it seems like, that have the potential to really increase longevity. And so when you put those things together, we're talking about increased diversity, needs, wants, desires, along a lot of different dimensions. You couple with that wealth inequality, the great retail bifurcation, Scott, that we mentioned before. And it just means that there's a broader mosaic. One of the things I like to talk about often is that our industry was built for mass, not for a mosaic. Um, there's this movement afoot from mass to micro. And what the changing consumer and changing society and culture tell me is that that movement will only accelerate in the coming decade. So how do you think about that shift from mass to micro? How do you build your business to be able to execute from mass to micro? 
Um, and of course, in the e-commerce world, that's probably not that, um, you know, it's, it, it's not that advanced to sort of think about things like personalization, but I think it goes much deeper than, than that when you really think about mass to micro. We're actually talking about, um, you know, how do you create an assortment that matters to, you know, to the right group of people? How do you build a brand? So the explosion of brands, channels, formats, all of that is happening around us. And what we've got to do is we've got to figure out how do you compete and how do you get ahead of that? Um, You know, if you look at some of the data just around gender identity, there's data that says in the coming decade, um, and I think this was a Gallup poll, they said that one in four Gen Zers globally believe that they'll change their gender identity once in their lifetime. Okay, so now if you play that out and you think about, you know, the coming decade, think about the traditional department store that organizes themselves by here's the men's department and here's the women's department. What we're seeing is this mosaic of how you identify, mosaic of this diversity and how we have to think about appealing to smaller and smaller you know, audiences is really going to be amplified if you really look at the data around the consumer and society and culture. Now, I actually think that's really actionable today. Um, in a mass environment, we have a value chain where we make big at scale decisions and most of those decisions are made by humans. As you move down into more and more granular execution, uh, it becomes very difficult to execute in the same way. So we actually have to begin to lean on new ways to operate. That's where predictive analytics comes in, automation comes in. And all of those, I believe, are very actionable as we sit here today. So hopefully, Scott, that was at least a highlight of one of the things that jumps out at me. Wow. Uh, You know, it's funny because that mass to micro thing uh comes up in a number of our shows uh we talk about it sometimes in the context of like Shein that there's sort of you know this old model where you know Mickey Drexler at the Gap would you know tell everyone what the cool clothes to wear is and Gap would sell a ton of that that outfit um and that the you know the interesting part of Shein is that they don't sell a ton of anything um that they you know uh identify that mosaic of consumer bases and make a you know uh small batches of a lot of different stuff to sell to all those different people. Um, and it, uh, it's funny. I was, I was doing an interview with a fashion reporter earlier today and she was asking me about the future of a, a athleisure company she was interested in. And I sort of talked about that, that trend from mass to micro. And she, she thought I was from Mars. <laughs> um, and that brings up like one of my first questions about the research. Cause, uh, you know, I read the, the research. I have a couple macro questions I want to ask, but, um, the one of the things I always struggle with when I think about the future is trying to get the timing right. Um, and like I, I distinctly remember early in my career, I worked at Blockbuster Entertainment and we we were trying to do video on demand like 10 years before Netflix was invented. And we had all these technical problems and we partnered with IBM. IBM brought in this chief scientist and he's like, don't worry about any of those storage problems because there's this new technology called the blue laser and the blue laser is going to solve all these storage problems. And like the only problem was the blue laser was 10 years away from being invented. (laughs) Um, And so it, it did uh, and other inventions solve, solve that storage problem, but not in the time horizon we had. Right. And, and so there was part of me that felt bad. Like I, you know, I'm talking to this reporter about that mass to micro trend, but like, is that really going to happen to athleisure fast enough that it's relevant to her article seems really hard to predict. Like, did you guys, when you were doing all these interviews, um, did you, did you try to think about the dimension of time or how did you think about the dimension of, of time in, in some of these transformations? Yeah, no, I love that question. I want to answer it in two different ways. The first is, you know, when we talk about mass to micro, I want to separate the idea that the market, is already moving mass to micro, whether or not, you know, individual companies are. Okay. So if you took that at leisure wear and you said, okay, let me go find the niche brands that are already appealing to, you know, niche micro segments on, you know, on whatever their favorite social media platform is, you're going to discover some, I could tell you, I've got a 16 and 17 year old in my house and I've discovered New, in particular, athleisure wear brands that are appealing to them. You know, my son goes to the gym and there's there's these gym brands that have come up. So I, what I like to say is whether or not, you know, you think mass to micro is viable for your company, I would say the market is already moving that way. 
Second of all, I'd say, actually, if you looked at the vast majority of the big, just look at the big retailers, they're already moving down this path. They may just not know it. You know, I talked about the explosion of brands, channels, formats, service models. That's already happening. You know, pick your favorite, you know, large retailer and, and recognize that the word omnichannel, you know, inherently means optionality. Uh, picking up curbside is optionality. All of that is optionality. Now, the problem for most of those companies has been they're pursuing mass to micro, but they're still trying to use a mass operating model to execute micro. And some of that, you know, it, it begins to show up in the financials pretty significantly. Now, let me go to another another um, dimension here, or another way to respond to your question, because it definitely came up. And, and it's really the conversation about the metaverse. This is the this is the one that I try and avoid, but I'm not actually going to put it on the table and tell you how I think about it, uh, because this very reason of like, is it real? When will it be real? Will we all wear goggles? You know, I don't believe it. I do believe it. Whatever that you know that position is. What we did is we said, well, let let's look at this, and you guys will appreciate this from our days back, you know, together on the board of directors at Shop.org. I always tell the stories about this because whether or not. You know, we're going to wear goggles. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to predict it. I don't know when it might happen. But I do know, and we just re released a report this week from our future of the consumer industry work around the growth of digital goods and services. So we we, we assessed already that digital goods and services, and by, this, by the way, I'm, I don't mean digital access to physical goods and services, actual digital goods and services now, um, you know, uh, equates for about 3% of the consumer's wallet, okay, 3%. And that may not seem like that much until you realize that apparel is around 3% and consumer electronics is around 3%. Now, if you look at it that way, it's actually a significant number already. And you know, if, when, or where AR, VR, any of those things really begin to take off, that number will only accelerate. So what I try and do is say, hey, let's not argue about the form factor. Let's not argue about, let's, let's focus on what's real. And what's real today is revenue, real revenue that's already flowing. Now, the issue today is that the vast majority of that revenue flowing to digital goods and services is not flowing to any of our, you know, what I would call traditional consumer industry companies. So consumer spending beginning to fragment away, flowing to new goods and services, it'll only accelerate, you know, once um, <laughs> my equation back when I equate it back to our shop.org days was, you remember when most people were offline, and then when their office had high speed internet, they'd show up in the you know, they'd show up at their office, and they they'd suddenly be online, and and that's that was the the genesis of uh, Cyber Monday, right? And so I use that to say, look, there was a period of time where most people weren't online, and then suddenly they were, and and uh, that accelerated sales. And the same thing's true today. Most of us spend most of our time not you know wearing a headset. You know, at the point in time where that actually becomes real, that number will only accelerate. So anyway, so I try and have a different conversation um, and try and demonstrate where and how you can track what is real about it. Yeah, uh, the the digital grids example was great. And I it's funny because I as soon as I read that, like I, I jumped into my Department of Commerce data and I'm saying, like, what other categories are like? similar order of magnitude. And yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of giant industries, um, that, that we spend a lot of time in. Uh, and it is, it is interesting because digital goods to me is this new label. You don't hear people talking about it that much. Uh, but there are lots of other labels that have like digital in front of them that sort of feels like the label is expiring because the distinction no longer matters. Right. So you, That's you know, right. we all started in e-commerce and today it's, it's really more commerce. Um, the in the industrial revolution they used to call uh factories electric factories to differentiate them from the ones that ran on steam right and today it's it's just factories like i i wonder if we're going to go through this whole evolution where there's this this new product called digital goods and eventually we're we're not going to care about the distinction between the physical goods and the digital ones and you know we'll be 3d printing digital goods and all this other stuff uh it's it's fascinating to think about the future which of course you're you're uh report like instantly took my mind to but one of my big questions uh reading the whole report in aggregate is um there's some really positive optimistic things about the future in here but there's also a lot of negative things and i'm i'm curious like in the aggregate did you I, i'll confess 
I read it and I felt a little depressed. Like I, <laughs> um, and I, like, am I atypical in that regard? Like, do, like, is there, is there a way in which this is a slightly bleak future or am I just, uh, no, I, no, I, I think I in think, a malaise. No, I, th- I think it's a good, a good observation. And actually it's part of the question. Like, here's a really interesting thing. We had these workshops where we had these professionals, you know, from our industry join in and there'd be two tables. They'd all be presented with the same information and one table would would decide that the future is dystopian and dark and 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 they're very worried about where this is all heading. The second table have the same exact information and decide that there's a utopian future and within this, you know, actually there's a ton of possibility and 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 you know, great progress, right? Now the question, you know, if I was to predict, I'd have to say, okay, which one of those futures is the right one? And the reality is they're both possible. They're both po- like when you dig into this data, you realize both the, uto- the utopian future and dystopian future are possible. So then the real question is, what's the difference? And that's really where I love, you know, we've headed to say the difference has to do with the choices that we will make in the coming years that guide us one direction or another. Uh, and in fact, we refer to our, our report and our whole effort as what we call buying into better. Because there's a lot of change. In fact, there's there's more change that I see that's going to hit us in the next decade. It'll make the last decade pale in comparison. And those changes are up against some real challenges with trust and planet and privacy that we have to grapple with. And we actually have to buy into better, meaning as consumers, we have to be smart and make the right choices. But also as executives, as owners of capital, you know, as, as citizens, we have to play a part. And we actually have to, you know, help ensure that we're making the right decisions as we're navigating through to take us to the right utopian future. You know, I believe there is a utopian future. I believe that we collectively just think about the audience here on your podcast, the agency that we collectively have. Deloitte is a massive firm. We're a massive firm with a lot of influence. And and we look at buying into better as our own North Star as well. What role will we play? So I think it's the right question. Is it utopian or dystopian? But really what's more important are what are the choices and what role are we all going to play in, in making sure that we're navigating that future? Uh, that That is totally fair. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be excited to hear your answer on that. Um, mm. <laughs> the The other thing that really jumped out at me, uh, I... A, like we've known each other for a while and, and I'm, uh, sort of a fan of your thought process. Uh, and I like the fact that you tend to be a little cynical. Um, and I, I suspect I probably am too. <laughs> um, the, I don't suspect I know, but, uh, the, I, I'll confess, I do this, this, uh, presentation quite a bit where I debunk disruption, where I talk about how like everybody always thinks like that whatever they're working on is the biggest disruption in the history of mankind. And that, you know, every little thing is some, unique inflection point in in human history and how like most of them aren't that relevant in the in the overall scheme of things and so and so then you know i i read your study and we're talking about all these things that are sort of exponential change all these things changing faster than moore's law uh and you know it made me wonder huh like is this a unique confluence of factors um, you know, is there something special about this time that there's more of these interdependent factors that are changing so quickly um, that that, you know, the world really is getting disrupted in some unusual way? Or like, you know, has this been how we've made progress like throughout all history? And I, I guess I, I was sort of curious what, if you had a, a POV, how, how unique our our current moment in time is. So I, you're right. I start off, as I said, I'm a contrarian. I'm, I'm somewhat cynical as I start off. But it, as we've researched across these hundred some topics, I realized that I, I, while on the headline, I thought I understood some of these topics. I thought I understood. But only when we got out on the cutting edge and really understood what was happening, did did it really change my point of view. I mean, look, if you, 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 you mentioned, uh, you know, chat GPT earlier, in the call, uh, if you've paid attention to where that was six months ago to where it is today, where you know the the other generative AI things are, you can actually see this idea. In fact, Stanford University, through their AI index, says AI is now it's not going at Moore's law; it's actually doubling every three months. And if you, and I assume that you've been playing with these tools and this generative AI that's now available mm-hmm. to us. 
If you've been paying attention over the six months, you can actually really see the degree and the speed that that's changing. Now, meanwhile, if you go into and spend some time, like I've spent a lot of time with our healthcare practice because of the the convergence of healthcare and consumer, which is a whole nother topic we could go into. But if you begin to look at the breakthroughs that have happened just in the last 12 months, uh, you know, at the, at the intersection of artificial intelligence and health, if you look at it, uh, the advances that have happened with CRISPR, which is gene editing in the last year, uh, you, you begin to see like there really is some inflection point that's happening. And it's really happening at the convergence of these forces. You know, I think too often we try and pick one and say, oh, here's here's one like uh, drone delivery. Uh, OK, let's figure out what the implication of that one might be. But the reality is it's the it's the convergence of these topics that actually begin to, at least for me, brought me to a different place than I was when I started this this work. Yeah. Uh, and side note, um, in preparation for this show, I did ask chat GBT what the the future of the consumer industry was. Um, and it, it came back with the one word answer, which is metaverse. <laughs> uh, I thought it was going to say, hey, there's six forces. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm out of a job. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, it's uh, chat GBT, you know, uh, is is uh, this this model three engine is only trained on like, you know, a bunch of material from 2020, I want to say That's 2021, That's maybe. Right. Yeah. No, and so so it, it was kind of impressive that it picked the metaverse. Uh, and, and of course, uh, next year it will it will have all your uh, the, the version for the engine will be much better and have your stuff in it. Hey, I don't know if you picked up on this on the report. We within the report, we've got the, the icons of the six forces. Those icons were developed by generative AI. So we typed in text. And we're able to get the icons that represented those six forces. So when, when you look at the report, you know, there's a little bit of a Easter egg hunt for you. Cool. Let, let's uh, double click on AI a little bit. So uh, you mentioned generative. Uh, so there's the, you know, the graphic generative side and the verbal or textual. Um, you know, these are all cool, but what's something practical listeners can take away? So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm sitting at a, you know, a retailer e-commerce shop and I'm director of something, um, you know, what, what's their takeaway from this? There's, there's diversity of, of all flavors. There's a lot coming at you, a uh, hundred things. How do they, how do they pull this into something in their day job? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of use cases that I've seen um, that have been then posted on Twitter, um, you know, relative to, Hey, how can I do my day job today differently? And some of those have to do with creating copy, some of those have to do with, uh, I, I've seen SEO uh, optimization. Um, I've seen even complex things like taking a, a podcast like this and, and giving me a summary. So I think there's some real practical things that exist today. But actually, what, when I look forward, what's more becomes more interesting to me are the built-for-use cases. Uh, and and we're, we're starting to see those. Like there's one, one of the technologies is open source. You know, a lot of this is done through an organization where there's a lot of control around it, but there's also alternatives that are open source, one of which of generative AI. And it, you know, went open source, I think about six months ago and has already spawned something like 2000, you know, built for use startups. So for example, in e-commerce, you know, one of my clients said once, um, you know, creating the content for e-commerce was like feeding the beast. We have this big assortment. We're constantly changing the assortment. You know, next spring, we're going to have a whole different assortment. We need images. We need copy. We need attribution. And that is just a huge beast to keep up with. And in my mind, I can very easily see that being a, a tremendous use case for a built-for-use application uh, that would allow us to, and I, I expect that that'll be coming soon, that'll allow us to move very quickly, uh, you know, in, in that feeding the beast scenario. Got it. Um, any other, so we've talked a bit about the consumer and X tech with AI, any of the other, uh, six buckets you want to dive into that you think listeners would find interesting or actionable? Yeah. Let me talk about one that, that really stood out for me. Now, yeah, yeah, you have to back up a minute and just think about the consumer industry for a minute. But if if you think about the convergence of industries, and in particular, the convergence of the traditional consumer industry, retail even, and healthcare, uh, you know, really driven by the convergence of infotech and biotech. 
you can begin to see this starting to take shape today. And our, our Deloitte's healthcare practice looks at this shift that's occurring. So we're, we're, there's a shift happening with, you know, from treating sick people to wellness. And as that shift occurs, what's interesting is the money that's spent, you know, today treating sick people is largely insurance driven. Wellness, though, is a consumer category. And in 2019, you know, we estimated that that market in the US to be a $700 billion market. And our healthcare practice is estimated by 2040, it'll be a $5 trillion market. Now, just by way of comparison, you know, retail in the US is roughly a $5 trillion market. So it shows the explosive growth. And certainly, if you look at some of the major retailers, you can see the, the recognition of the importance of healthcare converging with traditional retail or healthcare becoming a bigger and bigger consumer category. Now, it depends on you know, you know whoever the listener is, you know how they want to interpret that. But what it tells me is, you know, with the aging population, longevity, uh, growth, uh, or even wealth inequality, and who has money to spend on uh, you know wellness that it will be a significant growth market in the consumer. And I think there's real opportunity for many traditional uh, e-commerce companies to think about you know, how, how they'll play as part of that you know, growth opportunity. Got it. Um, how about uh, you know, your colleagues in the auto uh, segment publish a lot of really cool things? So, and you, you kind of, so, so healthcare, I, I agree with you, it's going to go through, it needs to, right? It's like so painfully obvious whenever you touch that system that it's broken all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited that that one's going to get disrupted. And then um, uh, selfishly, uh, how does your framework uh, you know, fold into the auto industry? Yeah, it, it actually works. I, I spent um, some time recently with one of the you know, major auto uh, company with their CEO direct reports, working through what we've discovered and, and what the implications are. Um you know, the things like mass to micro also apply there. You know, uh, of course, the auto industry is going to go through a major transformation where they're moving from combustion engines uh, to electric. But it's not just like, hey, same car, take out this engine, put, you know, an, a new electric one in. It actually is a radical change in manufacturing and what the platform is. But there's also this digital goods and services thing that I mentioned before, because if you really look at where margin will come from and where revenue will come from into the future. You can begin to see, you know, you'll buy the the platform, which will be the car. Uh, you'll have software, which will be the digital goods and services that you subscribe to. And you can see that today with certainly with the the leading electron or electric um, car company today is being able to subscribe to capability. And you can mm-hmm. begin to see that shift from, you know, traditional revenue to new revenue models. So there's major transformation that's happening there. Uh, for sure. In fact, it may be one of the industries that's that's undergoing the most radical transformation within consumer. But all of the same sorts of things that I've highlighted here actually apply there as well. I'm uh, asking for a friend. Do you see any specific disruptions in how automobiles are cleaned coming down the pipeline? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking that most people will, will be getting a, a spiffy uh, subscription. I think subscription is the way to go. <laughs> the good news is uh all you knowledge workers thought you were safe and uh it was the the people out doing stuff but it's going to invert on you. So <laughs> AI is going to take the uh, the office worker jobs first and they'll we'll still need people to clean things and move them around for us. So Yeah, good point. I I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before but like you know whenever you go to CES and they show all these clever automations there's always a robot making coffee. And <laughs> and uh what's what's hysterical about that is the robot is always doing the good job. The robot is always like pulling the shot and making the beautiful latte art on top of the the coffee. And then a poor human comes in behind the robot and empties all the uh, coffee uh, grinds out of the machine. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, yeah, it seems like we're automating the, That's right. the wrong, wrong side of a lot of these equations. Now you, you hit on automation and that's a topic I could go to if that's, you know, yeah, helpful please. here. Um, because when you begin to look at the move from mass to micro, I said earlier that the only way you can really make that move efficiently, effectively is is to move from you know making mass decisions to making more granular decisions that are data driven and then frankly are automated in their execution. And so there's you know there's a good shift of automation that will happen in this next decade. Um, but some people predict that between fifty and sixty million jobs 
in the United States could be automated away in the next decade. Now, keep that in mind that that's in a that's on a base of about 190 million jobs. So that's a big, significant number. And on one hand, there's efficiency, effectiveness, there's granularity, there's you know this mass to micro shift. That's all good. But on the other side, there's what we call workforce extremes, because we have to care about the people who will be you know automated out of their jobs. Um, if that number is is even close, you know, then we have to think actively about how do we ensure that you know, that those employees find their ways to the new jobs. And by the way, some people can argue, and I get this argument all the time, hey, in history, every time we ever automated away jobs, you know, we created new jobs. And that may be, that that may be true. Um, You know, however, a lot of this automation that's occurring, it's, I mean, it's, it's occurring across manual work, cognitive work, and even creative work. So there's significant, you know, there's significant change on that front coming. The thing, though, as a, as a retail, you know, uh, a lover of the retail industry, I think about, though, is that those workers are also our consumers. You know, we need uh, we need a healthy middle class, right? We need a healthy consumer um, you know, category, you know, in order for our industry to thrive. So on one hand, there's a lot coming. On the other hand, there's implications of that that we ought to be ahead of thinking about, you know, and, and worried about because there's big implications that come down from from that drastic of a move. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Casey, when I read your the whole research in whole, that was my biggest takeaway is like, hey, 2 billion more people, they're all going to live, live way longer. Um, we have an opportunity to sell a lot more stuff, uh, comma, the, the, those consumers just have to be in a, a condition in which they can buy it. Um, so uh, I'll certainly be rooting for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am curious, though, like what the future of this report is for you. Like, do you envision redoing it every year? Is this something you'll revisit periodically? And would you expect it to change very much from year to year? Have you sort of thought about that yet? Yeah, we have. In fact, I'm glad you asked that question, because while we may seem like we're here talking about a report, we're actually talking about a program. And what I mean by a program is, for, for Deloitte and our consumer industry, we've actually launched uh, the future of the consumer industry, not as a report, but an ongoing program, uh, you know, a center, an office that will be continually looking at the forces, keeping this up to date. But also, you know, it's a, it's a collection of research, it's a collection of insights, it's a collection of tools. We're actively serving clients, bringing this content to bear and we've got all sorts of um, as workshops and application that comes along with it. So that's this is the beginning of that as an ongoing program. Uh, so you'll be able to find us online. You'll be able to stay up to speed on the different reports that we're going to continue to put out uh, that that build upon uh, this work that we're starting with. Even I mentioned before the the digital goods and services report that we just launched earlier in the week is one of the the offshoots that come out of this research. And there will be more. Very cool. So you've, uh, this is called job security. It sounds like you've, you've planted a flag and now you'll be able to kind of keep growing from here. <laughs> yeah. It's look for me, it's cool. Like this is energizing. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. I love to be able to think about this in the context of the kind of work that you guys do, the kind of work that I get an opportunity to do. So, you know, I'm thrilled that Deloitte has given me the opportunity to do this. I'm energized. The people that I have the opportunity to work from and learn from are just phenomenal. You know, so I, I, I couldn't ask for more rather than, hey, understand and help us make a difference. Yeah. And then so to zoom back out, you, you kind of at the top, you said, you know, there was two tables and some ended up with the dystopian kind of view of things, kind of a Hunger Games scenario. And then uh, the others were were utopian what what do you think that utopia looks like if we kind of pull all the levers towards the best possible outcome? Yeah, I mean, you you can see a path in some of these forces that actually say uh, humanity will be you know much better. Uh, you know, the ability to address illness, uh, sickness, uh, the ability to you know create the kind of value that actually allows you know the, the additional two billion consumers. The two billion people that to to live and 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 thrive, um, those things exist. The ability to address uh, education gaps, um, you know, every one of these things that you look at today and, and may say is negative. You go look. There's possibilities that are coming that both have to do with technology, 
but they also have to do with changing values, you know, of, of younger generations and their desire to address some of these issues. So there is real utopian possibility that lives in, you know, within these forces. That's why we really do call it buying it a better because we believe better is an absolute possible outcome, but we have to be active. We have to understand the choices that are before us. And then as executives of, of companies, we have to participate not just as, um, you know, you know, in service of shareholder value, but we have to serve, you know, a broader, uh, stakeholder and make sure that we're thinking about that. I love that note of optimism. And that is actually going to be a great place to leave it because we have, uh, perfectly used up our allotted time. Uh, but I want to assure listeners, we're going to put a link in the show notes uh, to the Deloitte landing page so you can uh, get get a copy of, of this first um, uh, report and uh, dive into it, it yourself. And I assume we'll find all the fallen reports there as well. So uh, Casey, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and uh, sharing some new knowledge bombs with us. Oh, thank you guys for having me again. I always love uh, getting together with you guys and talking. Yeah, and if uh, listeners want to follow your socials, where where are you most active? Well, so I'm on uh, Twitter at at K L O B A U G H. I'm also on LinkedIn. You'll find me Casey Loba, um, and 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 we will be continuing this conversation there and publishing you know an ongoing thread of conversation and information if this is what's you know interesting to you. Very cool. As Jason said, we really appreciate it. I uh, sidebar with a couple of teenagers. I thought you were going to throw out your TikTok, but I guess I guess you haven't really super <laughs> like like Jason and I. You're a little too shy for that platform. I I, I referenced I referenced my daughter <laughs> earlier as as being on the TikTube. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, well, we really appreciate it, and uh, you know this uh, early look for the pod. We appreciate you, and uh, welcome to the been on the podcast five times Hall of Fame. Well, I guess I'll see you the sixth time sometime soon. Well, we look forward to that. <laughs> uh, and as always, if people got value out of this show, um, you know, the best way to repay us is uh, to write that five-star review on iTunes. Um, if you uh, can log on to ChatGBT, you can actually get it to write the review for you and just paste it right in into iTunes. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 